This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. We are joined on the phone by uh, Carl Palmer, ELP's Legacy, embarking on their final leg of their 2019 world tour. And to discuss all things drummers, well, we have got Rob Mount, who, of course, has spent a lot of time with Lou Graham and others. Uh, bonjour, Rob. Uh, welcome back, my share friend. Hey, Mitch. Thanks for having me on. Bonjour to you. And uh, great to be back with you. Yes, and you must be excited because I've been checking the Apple podcast charts around the world, and you will not believe this, but in music interviews, Apple podcasts, I am number one in Greece. So you are on the number one Greek music interview podcast. So you have to be ultimately thrilled by that. Wow. Yeah, man. Congratulations. <laughs> you deserve it. You know, I listen to you all the time and just goes to show you that everybody else does and you do a great job, and there's an extra added bonus that that uh, you wouldn't know that I'll, I'll share with you now is I actually grew up in the town of Greece here in Rochester, New York. So there you go. It's even extra special for me. There you go. You see? <laughs> anyway, those, those charts are fun. Apparently, I'm number five in Japan and so on and so forth. But uh, enough about me. Let's uh, let's talk about you. The, uh, the Lou Graham uh, gig ended in uh, December of 2018 for you. What are you up to these days? Well, right now, um, after clearing through all the holidays and stuff of uh, the end of last year and the beginning of this year, I've uh, been teaching drums, which is something that's fun for me. So I've got a few different students that I do either via Skype or in person. Um, I've been put, putting together a, uh, a band project here in uh, upstate New York with uh, some of the best guys in this area for fun. Um, you know, a chance to go out and keep my chops up and play some fun tunes that uh, we all like that haven't been beaten to death by other bands in the area, you know, so, you know, I have fun doing that. And Well, okay, uh, but, but if a fan, a couple, I'm just going to say, if a fan listening, that? if a fan that's listening wants to get a lesson with you, a Skype lesson, where do they reach you? How do we get a private lesson from Rob? Well, hey, thanks for asking. You can go to my website, which is www.robmount, which is M-O-U-N-T, dot com. And uh, there's a section right on my website that'll tell you how to get in touch with me. Um, you can email me also at rob at robmount.com. So, yeah, that'd be great. I love doing it. and uh, have a ball, you know. And, and some, since, some drums. since I'm number one in Greece, I expect that you'll be getting a lot of Greek students in the next couple of weeks. So that'll be fun. Hey, I better start brushing up on my, my Greek then. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Uh, what do you say? Tikanis? Is that it? Is that the word? Uh, I don't even know. But uh, let's get quickly uh, away from the jokes to uh, Carl Palmer. He is a, a, a drummer, a legendary drummer. And, of course, he's doing this ELP Legacy Tour. And, of course, Asia, which with Ron Bumblefoot and others. Um you're a drummer. When you see Carl Palmer or you, you listen to Carl, what does he, what, 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 do you, what do you notice the most? What, what strikes you about what Carl does? Wow, that's a loaded question because there's so many, so many cool things about uh, Carl Palmer. And uh, one of my best buddies actually was his drum tech for many years, who now works for Yes, and he also worked for Asia. So I got to meet Carl. And when, Carl, when, uh, when Asia got back together, what was it, 12 15 years ago, they actually uh, got back together here in Rochester, New York, and did some warm-up dates or did a warm-up date, and I got to go hang with him. And real cool guy. And and I mean, one of the one of the things coming from me as a drummer, I noticed about his playing. Um, in addition to be 
being very showy, very, he puts on a great show. He's very entertaining to watch. He's one of the first guys to come out to be kind of, you know, not just be back there hitting away, but actually kind of putting on a, a show. Um, but he, he comes from a, a group of a few different drummers that, I, that English guys that I really like that were big influences on me that were very kind of, I would say, uh, rudimental, um, in, in kind of orchestral kind of drumming where, you know, you'd have like a Carl Palmer. I kind of put in uh, like a cozy Powell um, in with, with him as well. And Ansley Dunbar. And, and those guys were very precise drummers, very, uh, you know, I use the word orchestral, but very, you know, very. Well, they're always in the, they're, they're always in the pocket. You know, there, there are some guys that, that play to a click or need a drum machine or whatever. These guys are the drum machine. They're just always on time, precise. It's 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 yes. amazing. Ainsley Dunbar as well, and like you said, and just a just a fantastic stuff. Now, um, before I, I get over to the interview with uh, Carl, I uh, recently had uh, Bob Kulik on the phone. Uh, we did an interview with them. I, I know you're a big, huge Kiss fan. What did you think of the Rock Talk with Mitch LaFont presents Bob Kulik October 2019 interview? Oh, wow. <laughs> Put me on the spot there. Well, let's just say um, it, was, it was very interesting. I mean, you know, Bob's really got a great pedigree and uh, he's done a lot of great stuff. And you uh, sure he was on fire that day. <laughs> All you got to do is look at some of the comments. Um, on your post about that, uh, that particular episode. And it, it sure stirred the pot. And, um, you know, I, what can I say? You know, it was entertaining to listen to. I, I, that's probably the best way to put it because, you know, a lot of times you'll interview people and I'm sure you, you, you know, this cause you, you interview people, you get a lot of the stock answers. You get a lot of the same rhetoric they give everybody else. It's, it sounds rehearsed, you know what I mean? And, and, and it, that interview was the complete opposite of that. I mean, I, 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 whether it's good or bad, the person's opinions, you know what I mean? Whether, the, whether their opinions are good or bad, you agree or disagree with them. At least when you interview a guy like that, you get honesty, you know, you get, you, you got how he felt, you know, none of that sounded rehearsed, it, you know, it, well, it wasn't more like, I'll tell you what, we, was that, None of it was rehearsed. We we had set up the right. interview. He he had put out a list of twenty four Kiss songs that he either wrote or played on, etc. And I said, "Hey Bob, would you want to talk about these twenty four songs? And we'll get into the history and the context, and you know how was one different, and how you approach the solos." And I did my intro, and I said, "Hey, here is uh, Bob Kulik," and he said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, Grammy introducing Bob Kulik," and I went, "Okay," <laughs> and. I, ha I had noticed that him and his brother had been sort of not doing anything together. And so I just threw out that question and then it got into, right. this, and then I got into this long answer. And, and as I do, I go, well, okay, forget talking about the 24 songs. I got something else to talk about. Let's do that. Now, I had a few fans write me and go, you shouldn't have run that interview. That's terrible, horrible person. You shouldn't have done that. Uh, and I'm like, well... <laughs> And I, I'm like, sorry, no, my, my, my job is not to censor what the artist says. In fact, and that's why I play the interviews in full so that you hear what they say. Um, and I think, yeah. and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, my judgment is, is that the fan listening is smart and the fan can make up his own opinion. Now, if you agree with Bob, good. Agree with Bob. 
if you disagree with Bob and you think he's a complete whatever, well, good as well. But I, I don't think I should not give you that opportunity to make that decision. You should listen to it and go, son of a, or what a good guy. And and yeah, I, I know fans. Some fans thought it was horrible, uh, but it's like, listen, most fans wrote in and they had a, a very strong point of view, and I'm glad they had that opportunity to have that point of view by listening to it. And sometimes you agree with a. Uh, listen, there's a lot of artists that do interviews, and you, and you go, oh, well, that's a stock answer, or you go, at least you got a real, yep. you know. Anyway, I, 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 a couple of people called me fake journalist. I'm just like, no, a real journalist puts out. <laughs> A real journalist puts stuff out and lets people decide. You know, you, list, you, you look at some of the American news these days and they force feed you a point of view. You should be liberal. You should be conservative. Yeah. And I don't think yeah. that that's what journalism's about. I should not be force feeding you uh, a point of view. So anyway, I, I don't regret right. doing it. And if folks didn't like it, uh, you know, I'm, well, thank you for listening. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you didn't, uh, whatever. <laughs> And uh, anyway, and, and right. I meant I meant no disrespect to anybody in there. I meant no disrespect to anybody in the Kiss camp. I meant no disrespect to Bruce. Uh, you know, everybody's. No, what everybody... you're doing is asking the questions. I yes. mean, how did you do anything wrong? You you ask the questions and let him go. You know, I mean, let let people sink or swim by their own words. All you're doing is is kind of you know hosting it. You know, and not 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 belittling no. you, what you do. But no, but I'm that's saying. but that's the, that's exactly right. That's that's what you know. You go back to the days of Walter Cronkite and all that. That's what they did. They didn't become the subject. They let the yes. subject be, and they observed the subject. And they they presented it to the American people and said, "Here, Arthur Murrow." And all. that's what. That's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to have a point of view. And and listen, I, I love Bruce. And if Bruce wants to come on and give his point of view, he's more than welcome to. I don't think he will because I don't think he wants to get uh, more involved in the in the conversation. But anyway, yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let's get over to Carl Palmer. You have any any last words before we hit Carl? No, I just well well yeah, but just one of the best drummers out there. The guy's a living legend, and. Um, to get a chance to go see him play, you know, definitely, you know, these guys are getting older. They're not going to be around too much longer, you know, and uh, I know he's had a health scare within the last few few years or so. He had a heart attack or something. I'm, like, I'm not really sure, but, you know, these guys, they're getting older, so go see him play because, you know, YouTube doesn't really cut it. Going out live is really where it's at, and there you go. So go see a legend while they're still, while he's still around. Yeah, you know? and, and Carl is live. There's no tape. So uh, anyway, here he is, a living legend, a drummer extraordinaire, etc., etc., Carl Palmer. We are speaking with a legendary drummer, Carl Palmer. Carl Palmer's ELP Legacy embarks on their final leg of the 2019 World Tour. Uh, Carl, as we say in Montreal, bonjour. How are you? Really well, to tell you the truth. I'm, I'm looking forward to... Uh, uh, to the start of this tour, I've had a nice sort of period of time off. Uh, I was on the Royal Affair tour, as you know, uh, with Yes, Asia, uh, John Lodge, and Carl Palmer's ELP Legacy. And I had double duties. I was playing in Asia and playing in my band. And uh, that was a fantastic tour. 28, 29 days, uh, well, 29 concerts, should I say. Uh, yeah, so I've had a nice period of time at home. Uh, I've just come into London because um, I live mainly in Cyprus. I've just come into London and, uh, yeah, I'm getting ready to leave on Monday to come back into America. So talk to me about that real quick. I didn't, I didn't know you lived in Cyprus. That's I've a been sort there of... about 19 years. Wow. So I live, in the, I live in the south of the island. I live in the, um, in the actual area where that's still 
sort of with, there's still a British base there. The military of defence is still there. MOD, and they're the sort of the Greek Cypriots in the north. They're the Turkish Cypriots. We have a buffer line. There's still a there's still a, a walled area that you have to go through with your passports. The island is probably one of the last sort of islands that are divided still. Uh, but it's no problem. You can go from side to side. It's not a deal. Uh, and I've been in Limassol. Uh, about 19 years now. It's a gorgeous part of the world to live in. But all right, let's talk about this final leg of the of the world tour. It, it's going to be, as, and I'm going to read straight from the press release, it says, a compelling live show with custom-made films. So that's my first angle of attack. Talk to me about these custom-made films. What are they? What okay, are we so and if you've never seen the show before, basically we have quite a cinematic approach to all of the, the tunes that we play. And everything I play is uh, normally from the Emerson, Lake and Palmer catalogue, or it's a, a piece of classical music that I've adapted, similar to the way ELP used to do that, with pieces like Pictures at an Exhibition and whatever. I'm not playing Pictures at an Exhibition on this tour, but you know I have adapted various pieces throughout the years that have had my group. And what we do, we look at uh, whatever's going on in the music, and we try and um, we try and find some film or whatever that will suit what we're doing, and that's what we project on the back uh, on the back of the stage. We have a, a screen that's roughly eight. 0.5 by about 14 wide so quite a big screen and um it's a very clear image and basically whatever you see on the screen is related to the music that we're playing at the time talk to me about the about the interest in the visual arts because you also have your art and and people can check it out at callpalmerart.com but talk to me about that creative process how how different is it for you when you approach music and when you approach visual arts, is it the same creative process or is it completely different? Well, this is completely different because this started in 1973 when I started experimenting with light and shadows and reflections. And basically what it was in 73 was I had uh, a pair of drumsticks that had some light bulbs which were taped to the end of them. And there would be a cable from each drumstick going down to the floor where there would be a battery. I could switch on these light bulbs, but obviously I couldn't play the drums because what would happen is the light bulbs would break. But I could mime and sort of like move my arms accordingly to, to you know, to whatever I, I would want to play at the time. And I captured that on film. Um, on, I photo, had myself photographed and I noticed that the movement of light was really quite interesting. And I thought it's at some stage this will become uh, an art form. Uh, I really thought way back then because I could see that there was something there was something there. It actually started when I was with The Crazy World of Arthur Brown in 68. I used to play with about four or five strobe lights around my drum, stick, uh, drum set. And if you, uh, if you sort of move your hand through a strobe light, it looks like it's in slow motion, even if you're going very fast with your hand. Well, if you've got a drumstick in your hand and you move it through a couple of strobe lights which are facing you, you get some different sort of uh, reflections and sort of shadows. There's a different sort of shudder of light, as it were. So that's where I picked up the idea. Then I tried the um, uh, drumsticks with the light bulbs. And then if you roll forward about 40 years, the Chinese developed a digital drumstick that had um, 
Uh, they were LED drumsticks with light bulbs built into the stick, which was self-generating. Generating. You didn't need a battery. Um, you picked them up and they, they lit up. And they had like red, yellow, green, blue. And uh, I decided to uh, uh, to experiment with those and see if I could capture the you know light being thrown around with a different colored drumstick in each hand, a blue in the left, a red in the right or whatever. And um, I found that the surfaces around me uh, reflected light. There was definitely shadows which could be picked up as I played. And uh, that formed the beginning of a new art form. And uh, I've sold to date, I've probably sold about 600 canvases. Wow, that is great. And, and by the way, I, I got to say, I miss those days of the creativity on stage. When you looked at what Genesis was doing or what you were doing or Kiss with the, you know, the, the guitars that would smoke. We don't seem to have that visual presentation with newer bands. And it's like, come on, let's get back to that. That's what was fun about shows. Have we lost that, by the way? Have we... We yeah, I do think of... it's well. I think it's kind of changed, and people really rely more on lights and the, the they try to get the audio side of uh, the concerts as good as what they possibly can. I definitely think you know that the beginning of all that theatre rock really started with people like the Crazy World of Arthur Brown because he was wearing makeup and strobe lights and this and that on stage before Kiss were even thought of, and way before Bowie he even walked out onto a stage. So that theatre sort of rock as it was then you know really was started by arthur brown and i was fortunate fortunate enough to be in that band the crazy world of arthur brown we had a number one single and album at the same time in 1968 and it went on from there and a lot of people developed it david bowie kiss you name it i mean emerson lake and palmer you name it it just went on and on and on genesis and so forth um, i just think that those times you know maybe you know every dog has its day and people don't really see that as being important anymore i mean i don't have theatrics like that i do have visual content but i don't really have any of that kind of dressing up and smoke coming out of guitars um i suppose i've done it being there got the t-shirt and just looking for other ways newer ways you know but yeah. I do understand what you mean. It is missing. And who knows? There might be some younger bands who might bring it back uh, in the years to come. And, and by the way, you are right in the sense that we do seem to have gone to the more visual with those big giant screens with all kinds of stuff going on. A lot of bands are doing that. Uh, let me just quickly talk to you about the Asia tour, that, that uh, the Royal Affair tour with Yes and all that from this summer. Yes. yes. You had Ron Bomblefoot Thal. Ron's a friend of mine. Talk to me about getting Ron in the band and what did he bring to the band? Because here's a guy who's who's obviously younger, uh, different generation. His, his influences probably may be different than yours. And yet you look at the video, you hear the reviews and you went, man, he just nailed it. Um, talk to me about working with a guy from formerly of Guns N' Roses in Asia. Um, well, God, you know, to be honest with you, I mean, Ron's been a little bit of a journeyman, journeyman throughout his career. And he's had, you know, some success with Guns N' Roses. Um, he's had a certain amount of uh, success with, um, you know, Mike, Mike Portnoy and the band that they've got together. Uh, was it Sons of Apollo? Um, I think Ron really appreciates good songs. He appreciates, you know, what Asia stood for. He, he obviously knew about it. You know, he was he was quite young when it came out. There's a good 10 years difference between us. Um, so it obviously influenced him as well, and he knew he knew how to deal with the songs. He dealt with them remarkably well. He's a very good uh, lead guitar player, and he just seemed to suit. Um, we did try it with Billy Sherwood being the lead vocalist. 
We did that in 2017 when we supported Journey for roughly 47 concerts uh, through March and then through June and July of that year. And that was okay, but it wasn't strong enough. And uh, we decided that uh, um, the guitar player that we had at the time, you know, didn't sing. It was a very good uh, guitar player. Uh, but we figured, you know, maybe we could up the game and see if we can relaunch Asia and give it a, uh, you know, a breath of fresh air. And, uh, you know, Ron Bumblefoot kept coming up. Uh, Ron Fowle's name just kept coming up. And I saw him play with uh, Sons of Apollo on one of those Cruise to the Edge tours. And I was kind of impressed, though he didn't do too much singing. Um, I thought the guitar playing was good. And um, then I heard... Uh, I heard a couple of sound files that got sent to me of, of him singing. I thought, well, you know, this has definitely got to be worth a try. And uh, uh, I can tell you he's totally professional. He's a great person. I enjoy his company and he's a great musician. And uh, he's definitely um, given us a chance to put Asia back together again. And uh, hopefully in 2020, uh, we'll come out again, uh, possibly in a support position, uh, because I think that would be better for us, and, and try and, you know, bring the band back up. Who knows? It might happen. If it does happen, does, does it include new music? Do you want it to include new music? Does it have to do include that. new music? I think when a band's been away too long, all journalists ask you about new music. That, that is totally irrelevant. To, we haven't really got a band that means anything yet. We've done 28 dates with Ron Thal. It's only in America. It's not all over America. It's never been into Europe. It's never been into Asia as that. You know, we would have to do it properly from a business point of view and we'd have to build it on a global level playing the hits that we've got and we've got plenty of them and establish the band now um, any new music that would be written or played or recorded would not get onto radio would last about approximately three weeks and, and i wouldn't agree to do it so that won't happen that won't happen. All right. Well, what will happen, though, is your uh, Carl Palmer Prague Rock Camp coming up on uh, November 8th, 9th, and 10th in uh, Philadelphia. Talk we'll be at that, incidentally, and he will be teaching guitar. There'll be a guitar workshop with Ron. There's also one with Paul Bielatovich, who's in my band, and Simon Fitzpatrick, and also with uh, Derek Sheranian on keyboards as a vocal coach as well. There'll be some business talks from uh, Bruce Pilato, my manager. I'll also be giving a couple of career talks. I, um, I'm a fellow here at uh, the, the University of Southampton, and I give various business talks and career talks and, and demonstrate uh, some you know, drums and things for them you know, once a year. So I'm going to actually give one of my talks as well uh, at the camp. Because obviously, you know, musicians, you know, can have great teachers and you can come to a camp like this. But it's nice if they can go away with a little more information on how they're going to open the doors to their future. That's very, very important, you know, because you do need to be luck, have a certain amount of luck. You need to be lucky, but you do need to have a certain amount of knowledge to turn the key, as it were. As it were. And of course, since we mentioned Kiss in the last little part, uh, Derek Sherinian did tour with Kiss for for an entire cycle, if you didn't know. So there you go. Um, when I saw Derek, first of all, he was with Dream Theater, and Dream Theater was supporting Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Jethro Tull. It was three bands on the, uh, on the, on the bill. It was a double header between Tull and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, depending on what uh, 
territory we were in. We would change who was went on last, uh, but the opener was always Dream Theatre. So that's when I first met Derek. Yeah, he's he's great. Now, uh, being in Montreal, of course, it's 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 crucial that I ask you about Emerson Lake and Palmer in concert, recorded here uh, at yes. the Olympic Stadium on August twenty sixth, nineteen seventy seven. Uh, the yep. day before my ninth birthday, of of all things. Wow. Yes, August 27th for me. But but talk to me about that, because it, it has become very revered and, and very, very well revered in Montreal, of course, because anything that's local is like, oh, my God, look at that. Uh, but, of course, a lot of the footage is of you standing out in the snow. So So talk to me about that concert. How did you decide to do Montreal? And then some of this footage that we see of you sort of standing in the in the snow, which obviously was not taped in august okay so um the we were living in the town at the time uh, obviously we met quite a few influential people and we asked if we could get permission to go into the uh, olympic stadium and we finally got permission and we decided to shoot it in the snow because we had an idea to come back and play it in the summer which we did do with an orchestra nevertheless the concert with the orchestra was a little bit of a failure because we had two twenty-four channel desks one for the orchestra and one for the group. Anyway, there's always a curfew in these uh, rather large stadiums. And though we'd sold 78,000 seats, we couldn't really hold back on the start time. In other words, whatever was in the contract, uh, the start and end time, those had to be abided by. Um, And we had a problem 15 minutes before we were about to go on. The desk that the orchestra were going through, which was 24 tracks, had gone down. Um, there was a problem with the multicore from the desk to the stage. The, the, the lines were checked, but the actual fault could not be traced. So because of the time, and we had major problems just working on it for about 20 minutes because we found it so late in the day. Well, it went wrong so late in the day. It really um, developed into pandemonium. So what we decided to do was flip it over, uh, take away four of our channels that we were using as a three-piece band and have two stereo pairs, which the orchestra would go through. This would enable you to record them, but you would not get the separation and the control when mixing that you would want in that situation. Anyway, that's how we did it. Uh, It could have been a lot better than what it was. I'm not ashamed of it by any means, but that's what happened. So that was quite a traumatic day on that day. Nevertheless, the orchestra played wonderfully well. We had a great time, and it was a a lovely sort of uh, beginning to that whole saga with the orchestra. And it obviously made sense to us because we started there in the winter, and then we ended up with a full stadium, more or less, uh, in the summer. Listen, it's a great album, and I think sometimes when even... What they call, uh, you know, mistakes. Sometimes that's what gives it charm. So there's, there's, there's a perfection in the imperfection is what... Uh, I agree with you totally. You know, I, I find that, uh, for me, I find, I find that a lot more interesting, you know. When everything is, you know, pro-tooled and homogenized like it is, okay, it's great for stuff to be absolutely spot on. But, you know, if you start to lose human element, then it takes away some of the excitement for me, you know. becomes very linear. And uh, I, I agree with you, one hundred percent. Yeah, and and if you if you look back, for example, to the like early Black Sabbath, there are times where it's the the, the drums are offbeat or the guitar, and you just go, oh. And then, but then if you took it out, it just wouldn't be Black Sabbath. It would just be something else. Anyway, um, I want to get over to to Tarkus. Uh, this is sort of the album that's that to me set the world on fire for the band. Um, 
you you were coming from an era where songs had to be sort of two and a half minutes, three minutes, you know, Love Me Do and, and, and Rolling Stones and everything was, you know, quick and out. Talk to me about going against that and, and how was that perceived within the industry? Did record company executives come to you and say, what are you doing 20 minutes? Get down to, t-. how was that perceived and how did you, if you had to fight against it or was it like, oh, this is great, this is different? Well, I mean, the tracks that you mentioned, Love Me Do and, and whatever, you know, all from the 60s, this was the beginning of the 70s. So we have moved on. Radio has moved on. Uh, and radio did play long pieces, especially in America. That's the reason why a lot of English bands went to America or a lot of European groups went to America, because the radio in America, Canada, was an art form. People would actually play these long pieces of music. And I can tell you now that I got off the plane at JFK, got into the car to drive into Manhattan, and the record company had arranged, there was no, no mobile phones in those days, had called on to WMMR, Scott Mooney in New York, and they played the full 23 minutes of pictures at an exhibition whilst we drove into Manhattan. And that was in the middle of the day. And we couldn't believe that you could do that. As I say, radio was an art form and the same in Canada. So when we came up with a concept that we thought was a good concept, which was really, not really a concept, it's just a piece of music, to be honest, but it was known as a concept album. Um, We realized that if there was anything that had to be played on the radio, maybe they wouldn't play the full 15, 17 minutes of Tarkas, and they'd have to edit out a song, Stones of Years. So we did our edits for radio anyway, up front, so they got them, because we couldn't rely on them doing them correctly. Um, There was never a problem with the um, uh, record label, because you have to understand, in those days, artists had a lot more freedom, and the freedom, you know, created the art. And sometimes it was bad art, and sometimes it was so good, it was the blueprint for the future. And things like Tarkas became the blueprint for the future. So Atlantic were very helpful, um, extremely supportive and you know we had we had tracks we had singles i mean don't forget whilst you talk about tarkas we still had all all the singles that we had still you turn me on from the beginning footprints in the snow celavi lucky man watching over you i mean you know we had a handful of like folky type sing-along songs and we had an instrumental as well which was a number one here in europe which was found fair for the common man and did remarkably well over in america and i think i think celavi was a number one in canada uh, and i think fanfare did pretty good over there as well so you know we we had everything the record company wanted and we had depth and that was the depth really gives you the legs to carry on because you know radio will only play so much and they don't play any of it today because it's all changed. It's all corporative, uh, you know, all corporate sort of like influence and investment. Uh, but in those days, you could have a little bit of both in there. And it made sense because these bands developed. And, you know, when P- Pink Floyd came out with Darker Side of the Moon, that got played, you know, and same with groups like Yes and Genesis in the early days and things. So it was all there. But these bands also had singles and the singles that, were the pieces of music that opened the door to radio, and that was the most important thing. It really was. So, okay, so so for the band though, and for yourself, what was sort of the the prime objective? What was it to get on the radio and have singles, or was it about having a full album and then getting on to to a, to a live show? And you know, what what was more important for you to, to be on the radio here in Montreal or to be 
a great live band? What, what was sort of the motivation to make music? For us, basically, the motivation to make music was to please ourselves, to make sure we were happy and, you know, none of us would sit on the fence. I mean, it's known that, you know, now throughout the music industry that Emerson, Lake and Palmer didn't get on very well as individuals, but musically we were like a house on fire. We, you know, we were just magical when we played. Um, So when we played, we, we had this moment in time which was just so glorious you know and the music that came out uh, was just fantastic but we were very eclectic eclectic so eclectic should i say so we would have various types of music there'd be jazz there'd be classical adaptations there'd be folky songs you know there would be whatever there would be so much in there you know there'd be a little bit of rock and roll but it was all so so different so that made us stand out and we were keyboard driven not guitars so our main objective was always to please ourselves what could we do that we thought was different and that we got off on that we really enjoyed obviously because we all like songs you know greg and myself are big beatles fans you know we always look for a song Uh, on the first album we had lucky man and knife edge they're both short songs so it was there from from the get-go so we knew that that you know, people will be drawn to that, and then maybe after you've played Knife Edge, you go and listen to Barbarian by Bella Bartok, which is a bit more in depth, a bit more intellectual, and you'll see that there's you know, the band's got legs, you know. So that's how we looked at it, really. It was we were just lucky that we, we like so many different genres of music. You really did, and 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 boy, just you know, thank you for all the music you've made, by the way. Uh, just real quick, I, I, I've heard and I've read a lot of interviews from you, and I don't hear you talk a lot about the last album, In the Hot Seat. Uh, talk to me about that album. Was, was that a very difficult... I mean, there were health issues, but other than that, was it, was it a difficult album to make, given the context of music at that time, was Nirvana and that, the whole Soundgarden stuff taken over and being... A, you know, we, we never worried about the punk thing. I mean, whatever it was doing, you know, uh, uh, Soundgarden or whoever, you know, or when the Sex Pistols came out, you know, a lot of bands... You know, our, our thing was just stay on track. This is what we do. That's what they do. And that's it. You know, In the Hot Seat was an album which was made, um, which we really shouldn't have made. It was the end, just like Love Beach was the end uh, in that first decade from 70 to 78. That we shouldn't have made that one. Um, in the Hot Seat was made uh, with Keith could only play with one hand. He'd had his operation during the studio time. I mean, that's the kind of band we were. We just, you know, he was a hypochondriac and had to have this operation. And he played the whole of the album with his left hand, which is a phenomenal left hand. But nevertheless, um, Greg didn't even play bass on that album. It was all samples and Keith played the bass. Um, The album was six weeks late in coming. Um, The lyrics were late. The performance on it is average. The the writing is not bad. Uh, Keith Olsen was a wrong choice for a producer. Um, it was over. It was gone. You know, that was it, really. That was it. I think we, we'd we'd had enough and uh, it, it was finished. We shouldn't have done it. It, it was one of those. And um, I, I also just want to quickly get to the to the first Asia album, because that one is one of those that sort of changed, you know, it just changed everything. Heat of the moment and all. talk to me about that album and, and that band. Was it really as you put it together, going to be, this is the next big thing and we're going to work this? 
Or was that success of the first album somewhat of a surprise where you went, oh, well, look at that. People like this. Um, well, to be honest with you, it was a moment in time which was captured. Uh, things like um, VH1, MTV were just coming out. There's a lot of new technology. I mean, we were now using videos to promote singles. Uh, David Geffen played a big part in launching the band. He wanted a, a new sort of group from England. And Asia came together because we were all friends from, you know, John was in UK, Steve was in Yes, I was in Emerson, Lake and Palmer. The only chap that wasn't in the prog rock band was Jeff. He was in the Buggles, who had video killed the radio star. And, a, you know, a good keyboard player, a nice guy and all of that. And we got together and started playing. The, basically, we sat down and had a talk and said, look, you know, we're not going to be able to get on radio and people aren't really going to hear the music. And if they don't hear the music, they won't come to the concert. So what are we going to do? So we decided that we'd try and hit on the prog rocky side, like Time Again, Wildest Dreams, which are on that first album, um, but to keep them as short as we can, never go longer than seven minutes and try and keep it to five. And we'll have songs as well, you know, and uh, we'll try and not make them too bubblegummy, but we'll, you know, give them integrity as much as what we possibly can. And we'll just see if we can sort of get round this problem that we've got because American radio, which, and, and the same in Canada, which really was the art form for the world, you know, musicians just love touring in Canada and America, um, had changed completely. So we had to go with the change to try and get it out there. And with, with the advent of the MTV and all of that sort of uh, new sort of way of promoting that new technology, VH1, whatever, it seemed to work for us, and our timing was absolutely perfect. Um, Geffen put a lot behind it. Nevertheless, you know, an album has to be really good to be number one for seven weeks, like the album was, and single, and it worked. And we was we were in the right place at the right time with the right person with the right band. You really were. And, and by the way, you're so right about MTV, and, and what I find different between MTV and YouTube is MTV had a focus. You know, you, you had to sort of sit down on the couch and turn on the channel, and you just stared at it all day. Now with YouTube, you can sort of click around, and you don't have that same focus. And it really did a lot for a lot of bands. And, and we sort of lost that that focus sometimes in our music. It was developing a visual art form along with the music. And that visual sort of art form, that cinematic sort of thing, which I, I still use today on stage. I have projection at the back of the stage for every piece of music that I play. I think is important. I think, um, I think visual, a visual aspect is very important to, to music. And, you know, MTV basically got that going. And yeah, I mean, there was some great, uh, Video directors, Godly and Cream, you know, who we used on uh, Only Time Will Tell, The Heat of the Moment, and a couple of others. You know, were, were great people to work with. And uh, it, it, was, it was the right time, the right place, the right technology, you know. So um, those days are gone, but it was really good. I really enjoyed that period. Yeah, they were great. And those guys were great. On, uh, what was their song? They had a single called Cry or something like that, right? They were. They did, yeah, yeah which was a really good song. Great song. Uh, great band. Of them. Yeah, very nice. Uh, I still, I still see Kevin occasionally. Oh, I'd love to uh, tell him to follow me. I'd love to do, I'd love to interview him because that, that's such a great moment in time being part of that whole visual stuff. Um, just real quick before we end here, the uh, BMG uh, starting in 2016 started uh, reissuing the uh, ELP stuff and, and anthologies. 
Uh, talk to me a little bit about that, because I think they just did a fantastic job. But where do we go from here? Is there more stuff that to come out of, of the vaults or, or repackages or what sort uh, of... The- we just released a, a vinyl package here in Europe. Um, you know, we did a box set about two years ago. We did um, 150 copies, I think. And that was a box set with some unreleased live recordings, um, some CDs, some vinyls, uh, a coffee table book, some black and white photographs. Um, that was quite that was quite uh, an uplifting uh, deal. Um, that sold out immediately. There's now uh, four vinyl collections which have been boxed uh, with all the appropriate pictures. Um, I think there'll probably be a um, singles box set come out. Um, I had out personally, Carl Palmer's ELP Legacy had the tribute album to Keith and Greg, which was a CD and a DVD. That was a couple of years ago. That was on BMG. Uh, and that sort of had people like Steve Hackett playing along with uh, the Legacy and, uh, uh, and the guy from, uh, who was it? Oh, on well, you keyboard. had uh, Mark, uh, Mark Stein, David Frangioni. Yeah, Mark Stein, singing uh, on Welcome Back and, and played the Hammond and stuff. Um, yeah, so uh, right now I would say to you we have a uh, we have a documentary which we're just putting together. Obviously, I, I'm doing that with people from BMG and, and various other people who are involved. Um, probably about 90 minutes worth. Obviously, the demise of Greg and Keith, and uh, we also have uh, Beyond the Beginning, which was a six-hour DVD, which all the rights have reverted back to us. Which I think we'll probably reissue that. Um, that kind of got lost between Sanctuary and Universal in the changeover, so it never really got the global sort of uh, exposure that we would have liked it to. On top of that, we've got Radar Films, who are looking at uh, doing a sci-fi movie and want to use the music uh, Carnival 9, and we've been in talks with them. And then because of next year being 2020, which is the 50th anniversary, I'm in talks and I'll be in meetings at the end of this uh, tour, at the end of November uh, in Los Angeles, uh, with a couple of hologram companies. Um, I've got the OK from the the Lake family and the Emerson family, and we're going to see if we can produce a hologram show with Keith and Greg and myself playing. Right, and that would be for the first album or, or just in general? Because the first album came out in 70... So uh, it would be nothing to do with the first album. Okay. The, the holograms are there of them playing with me. Um, we'll look at what music we want to play once we've got it all in position. But it's the 50th anniversary of ELP. Yeah? So we would probably take some of the bigger pieces of music. Obviously, Lucky Man from that album could be played. Um, so I would say that would probably be there. Um, there might be an instrumental like Fanfare. There could be Welcome Back, My Friends. The show that never ends. I don't know yet. We're still we're still in talks, and we've just uh, decided on the actual technical side of it of how it can be done, and we're just going through costings and and um, getting ready to um, at least see if we can set it up and get other people involved, like Live Nation and so forth. Well, that would be interesting, and I'm just going to ask you about this because we we've seen Ronnie James Dio and others go out and do the well not not Ronnie didn't do it but there, there's been these these uh Frank Zappa's done it Ronnie Frank, James Dio there's uh, been Buddy Holly and he did it with uh, and uh Roy Orbison did it together they've had there's there's been quite a few over the years over so, the last three years I think it's become a part of our industry which will develop and it will develop slowly what's different with this is is that you've got one guy who's still alive who was in the band 
and you'll have two holograms. And that will be quite interesting. And that will be, it'll be part of the show. It won't be all of the show, but it will be part of the show. I'll still have my band there. And it should be quite interesting. Okay, and that, 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 that's what I was going to get to. So your band will still be there, and then there will be sort of quote-unquote guest appearances. It's not just you playing with two holograms. Okay, that's, that's well, interesting. Be, I can't tell you how many pieces will be with the holograms, probably about six pieces, and then the rest of the show will be me playing with my band. But, you know, it won't be six pieces straight off with the holograms. They'll be interspersed throughout the set somehow, you know. We haven't got that far. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And, of course, uh, I'll remind folks the uh, the, the last leg of uh, Carl Palmer's ELP Legacy starts on uh, October 31st in Kent, Ohio. Uh, just head over to carlpalmer.com for all the information and uh, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Always oh, a great pleasure. Welcome. Yeah. Pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for the interview. Absolutely. And thank you for doing it. And just, uh, we, you know, we've done a couple over the years and it's always just been a great pleasure. In fact, I have a hard time keeping up with you. You you, you, you break oh. out of the gate like a sprinter and I got to try to catch up, but it's, I love it. Oh, it's, well, that's what life's all about. Be enthusiastic and live longer. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Très bien. Bonsoir. Good night. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk.